Welcome to church. Welcome to church. Great to see you guys. And uh, happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Uh, be sure to call your father or the father figure in your life today. Uh, don't miss that call. Make sure to call that father figure. Tell him love him. Tell him thank you. Yeah, thanks for being with us here today. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull it out and open up to Colossians chapter 3, the letter of the Colossians uh, chapter 3. The letter to the Colossians was written by uh, the Apostle Paul, who was a man who actually killed Christians a couple decades after Jesus oh, died and rose again. He then became a Christian. He then was a pastor for 15 years. He then planted a couple dozen churches. He's actually writing this letter from Rome in prison towards the end of his life. That is the letter to Colossians. Uh, we have Bibles placed at the ends of the rows. If you don't have one, feel free to nudge your neighbor and pass it down to you. Um, if you don't have a Bible at home, take that one with you. It's our gift to you today, okay? And when you get there, open up to chapter 3. Chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3, uh, the chapters in the Bible work the same way that chapters in a book work. The big number 3. That's the chapter number, okay? So Colossians chapter 3, okay? Great. Well, welcome, and um, I'm actually going to start by telling you guys a story about an ancient social practice, an ancient social practice that if you're under 30 years old, you may not be familiar with, so I have to kind of bring you up to speed. And that ancient social practice and protocol is called splitting the check. Anybody know what this is? Splitting the check. There we go. Yeah. Splitting the check. Okay, so this is what used to happen. Okay, back in the day, which was a Wednesday, um, it could be any day of the week. Okay, but back in the day, this is what happened. If you went out to happy hours or a restaurant with friends, at the end of that meal, the server would bring by a single check, and it was up to that table to figure out how to pay it. Okay, there's no such thing as split checks. It had to be paid. Okay, and you actually found out a lot about yourself when this happened. Because when this happened, each and every time, a standoff ensued. A standoff ensued. And you found out a lot about yourself during this, in the midst of this standoff. Um, you, you might be the type of person that once the check hit the table, your bladder just needed to be emptied, okay? And you were off to the restroom, okay? You are gone. It wasn't that you weren't gonna pay, it's that you weren't gonna figure out how it was gonna get paid, okay? Um, or maybe you were the type of person that saw the check coming out of the corner of your eye, and so you pretended to be in deep conversation with somebody else, okay? That's a team play. It's a great play. It's a team play with somebody else. We're really in a deep conversation. We, we, we don't see what's going on here, okay? Or uh, you were the type of the person that just kind of leaned back and just admitted stupidity. You're like, I, I can't do this. Every time I try, I, you, you don't want me figuring this out for you guys. Or if you're like me, me and where are my fellow nerds out there, you'd pick up the check and you'd have to try to figure it out, okay? And this is really difficult to do, okay? Because so, you, you have to be good at so many things, so many things. First, you have to have an excellent memory recall, okay? Excellent memory. You have to know what everybody ordered because no one else is really going to help you much in this because they don't want to get drugged into this awful duty, okay? So you have to have excellent memory recall. After you figure that out, you turn into a mathematician. Now you have to calculate tip and tax for everybody, okay? And then after that, you're thrust into being a banker, and all your friends are giving you these huge bills, and you're having to figure out how to split these huge bills for yourself. It's like, dude, I've never seen you use a 50 ever before in your life, but you're giving me a 50 right now. 
And no matter how hard you worked at it, no matter how tirelessly and how much effort you put into it, you always came up short. It's terrible, really terrible. And at that point in time, you're just so frustrated, at least I was, so frustrated with the whole thing, I just covered that extra amount myself so we could all move on. Now, about five or six years ago, I was at a happy hour with friends, and my friend Adam, he just paid the whole bill, and I kind of looked at him, and I was really confused, and he just shrugged back at me, and he said, just Venmo me, bro. Just Venmo me, bro. That's what he said to me. And I said, Venmo? What is this magic verb that you speak of? Venmo? And he went on to explain to me how we could now transfer payments to each other electronically without cash at all. It was amazing. A huge weight was lifted off my shoulders. Well, why, why do I tell you all about this today? Well, I'm telling you about this because the Colossians were experiencing something similar in their day, okay? They were experiencing something very difficult. You see, they were a group of young Christians. They had just left Greek and Roman cults in order to come to Christianity. They just experienced an abundance of life, freedom from sin, power over sin in their lives. But for one reason or another, they again found themselves powerless to handle sin in their lives. They were trying to do it, but they couldn't. But they couldn't. And that led to a host of, of different things that they were trying to do. But really, what we see happening in chapter 3 is the Apostle Paul is illuminating to them a reality to help them with this difficulty they're facing, much like my friend illuminated to me the reality of Venmo, this magnificent magic money-sending app. There's a reality there that is meant to make this easier. Paul is revealing that to the Colossians in chapter, in chapter 3. Because for the Colossians, victory over sin was behind a locked door. It was behind a locked door again for them. We've talked about that over the past few weeks. We've talked about the intricacies of that. I would encourage you to go listen to it on our app as, as Dave talked about that. They couldn't get victory over sin, so what were they doing? They were trying to create heightened religious, emotional experiences, kind of what you would call a mountaintop experience, so that they could encounter breakthrough and then be changed. But they found that ineffective. What else were they doing? They were actually creating long lists of rules and regulations that they had to follow in order that they wouldn't sin. But likewise, Paul says, they found these really ineffective. And so what Paul is doing is he's, um, he's revealing a reality to them that is supposed to help them, empower them to accomplish a difficult and, a and a seemingly impossible task of dealing with sin, okay? And I think how similar we can be today. How similar we can look at sin in our lives and say, I don't know how to have victory here. How do we do that? Okay, and, and similarly, Christians today can, can create religions in and of themselves that aren't effective at accomplishing that. It's been happening for 2,000 years now. We can create lists of rules. We can seek mountaintop experiences to change us. But Paul says that's not how you gracefully and effectively deal with sin. Okay, that's not how it works. Okay, and so if you're actually returning to the church, you say you're not a Christian, this is great for you to know because there are plenty of expressions of Christianity in churches that are unhealthy, 
that are immature and ineffective around this issue of sin, and it can lead to a lot of brokenness, a lot of pain, a lot of difficulty, okay? And so what you need to hear is that there is another way that's more graceful and more effective than these ways here, okay? So yes, we're gonna talk about sin today. I get that for many, this perhaps isn't a light topic, but here at Sedaris, what we do, we're, we're, we've been working through the book of Colossians here. We just take the scriptures as they come to us, and we come to chapter 3 of the book of Colossians, and it's all about how to handle our sin. But we, we do this because we believe that even when we press into the hard topics of scripture, even when we press into those topics that, that on the surface seem very difficult to stomach, that we find life. That when we consider them, we press into them. On the surface, they might seem difficult, but when we wrestle with them, we find life. And how to handle sin is just one of those topics, and it can be a really life-giving topic if we let it, okay? So this is what we're going to do. Um, first, we're going to unpack Paul's reality that he reveals. You could even call it the key that's going to open the door for how to gracefully and effectively deal with sin. We're going to unpack that reality in the first couple of verses of, of chapter 3 here. And then, and then we're actually going to look at the next, handful of, the next handful of verses and talk about how it helps us put sin to death, to use Paul's language right there in verse 5. Put to death, therefore. All right, so you got it. So we're going to unpack the reality and unpack how it helps us, okay? So let's just jump right into it then. Chapter 3 Verse 1, um, yeah, let's just jump into it. Paul writes this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is a strange passage. Let's just admit that right here. This is a strange passage. When you slow down to examine it, a host of strange things present themselves. It seems that Paul is working out some abstract theological concept where he says that we are someplace where we, in fact, are not. After all, we're all looking at each other right in the eyeballs right now. But Paul says, we're in heaven? That's confusing. And it's, it doesn't even seem to be a metaphor that he's using as well. Now, what he's doing is he's talking about this as if it's a real thing, as if it is a reality. He's saying there's something real and something true about the existence of every Christian, about your existence, about my existence, and so let's look at this reality together because he claims that in this reality, as we'll see this as we, go, as we go on, in this reality is the power to handle sin. All right, so let's look at it. You can break this reality down in three parts. Past, present, future. Past, present, and future, okay? First, the past reality. He says you have died and you have been raised with Christ that's a past tense reality that Paul says has happened to you if you're a Christian. Present tense. Your life is hidden with Christ, he says. 
Your life is hidden with Christ. That's a present tense reality. Future tense, you will appear with Christ in glory. Interesting. So if you are a Christian, there's no doubt in Paul's mind that you have experienced this death and this raising, that you are experiencing this hiddenness, and that you will experience this glory. He is 100% confident in this. And so how are we to understand these? I think we grasp them, on, or maybe we've heard them a lot. Maybe you've heard it plenty of times on an, and you've grasped it on an abstract level. Yes, I've heard this, Ryan. I, I mean, raise your hand if you've heard any one of these versions. Yeah, I think everybody who's called themselves a Christian has heard these, but what do they mean? What does it mean that you've died and have been raised with Christ? That your life is hidden with Christ, that you will be revealed with him in glory. If these realities contain the key for how to deal with sin, we need to deeply consider these questions, okay? All right, so to begin to answer the question, we have to understand how Paul uh, grounds these realities, okay, how he grounds them. And the, and the hint is right there in verse 1 and 2. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the, th- the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are, of, on, are above and not below. We've unpacked this most weeks here in Colossians, but we have to understand what Paul is talking about in this above and below dimension, because it's crucial for this reality. And we've kind of said it goes like this. Think of heaven, okay, as this big circle. This is heaven here. This is where God is from eternity past to eternity present. God is spirit. This is a spiritual realm, the realm of heaven, okay? Now, put a bubble inside of it, a little bubble inside of it. This is the created earth, okay? This started uh, what most scientists, uh, the consensus of most scientists is 13.75 billion years ago. Right here, this bubble, boom. Physical heaven, but it also, it's the whole universe. It's the universe, it's the galaxies, it's the stars, planets, earth, and everything on earth, kind of as a subsection of heaven. It's physical heaven. Adam and Eve are created and put on it. Now, it's called the heavens and the earth because there is, we have a physicality here, but it's heaven in this sense that God's will was perfectly done there in the created order. So we have this heavens, this is where God's will is done, this created order where God's will is also perfectly done, but then Satan entices the first humans to rebel against God and his fullness leaves. It's no longer heaven It becomes ruptured and broken. It's no longer this perfect place where all of God's will is perfectly done and where he can be in fullness. He leaves so that his fullness doesn't consume us. It's a step of grace. He separates himself. Okay? And so this is this above and below mindset that Paul is talking about throughout the book of Colossians. Above is this perfect heavenly spiritual realm where God is in his fullness, and below is the fallen earthly physical realm where God is, yes, but not in his fullness, only in part. And Paul says, when you became a Christian, your life died. Your earthly, sinful life died in Christ. This earthly realm is a a sinful realm broken by sin. We've likened it to a a cancerous tumor in an otherwise healthy body to kind of liken uh, the the heavens and the earth. 
We've likened it to uh, the rebellious southern half of the United States when they revolted in the Civil War. See, this earth represents a kind of a, a stubborn, rebellious, cancerous outpost in greater heaven. And Paul is saying, when you became a Christian, this earthly life that was rebellious, cancerous against God <clears throat> died. And it was taken out of this rebellious outpost, this is where it gets a little crazy, and put in the heavens. That's, that's the full abstract picture that Paul is working here. This is the reality that Paul says happened to you when you became a Christian. Now, this might confuse you a little bit because your body is still on earth, right? All of us are, are in fact here. I'm not trying to tell you you're somewhere where you in fact aren't. This might be a little confusing, but just stick with me here, okay? Because when, when, when I, I was very confused by Venmo when I first encountered it, I was like, what is this thing? I have to download an app. Someone had to explain it to me. I paid the wrong person at first. Oops. <laughs> Yikes. You know, they were nice enough to actually just give it back. That was pretty cool. But, but still, not everything is 100% intuitive. So, so lean into this and consider it with me for a second, okay? So let's take it piece by piece. Your earthly, rebellious, and cancerous life died with Christ. The earthly realm is that cancerous, rebellious outpost where sin is, where, where earthly lives are subject to something, though, in that sin. Paul called it the elemental spirits. Let's get back to chapter 2, verse 20. Paul said, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to their regulations? You see that death language, that life language? You died to the elemental spirits of the world. He's confused. Why are you operating as if you are alive in the earthly realm? Because they were submitting to religion that is just elemental spiritual religion is what he's saying. He's baffled at it. He's saying that an earthly death of sorts took place for every Christian. And that death means that sin no longer has power over us. So sin no longer has power over us because our earthly life has died. How did it die? The key lies in under, understanding Jesus. Because Jesus came to earth. He had an earthly body like we have. But he had a heavenly life from the get-go. He's the second person of the Trinity. He comes down to earth, doesn't have an earthly life that is subject to the elemental spirits of the world, but he has a heavenly life, perfect. He brought this will of God, perfect will of God, in his life down to earth. He's perfect without sin, and he maintains that throughout his life. And then he goes to the cross, his earthly body and his heavenly life go to the cross. And what happens, it's a bit of a mystery, tons of debates on how this actually takes place, but our earthly, rebellious, cancerous lives get put on Jesus' heavenly life, and he experiences God's wrath in his earthly body for it. Okay, this is just another way to think through and talk about the gospel of Jesus. He experienced God's wrath for our earthly rebellious lives, and God killed him. He was supposed to be on there for, on, on the scale of days, one, two, three days is how long people usually lasted on the cross. He dies, he dies in a manner of hours. God's wrath kills him on the cross. And this is why he is your 
Christ. This is why he is your Messiah. This is why he's your Savior. Because he took that earthly, rebellious, cancerous part of of us and he let God kill it in his body instead of ours. Instead of ours. And so now sin no longer has the power to put us at odds with God. But when you put your faith in Jesus, God took your earthly life of sin, put it upon the heavenly life and earthly body of Jesus, and he killed it. It no longer has the power to keep you at odds with God. When you put your faith in Jesus, you're united with him in his death. Your earthly life was killed. and You've been liberated from the sinful elemental spirits who hold sway over earthly lives. The analogy of a canceled debt is usually used in Scripture to talk about this. It, it goes like this. So long as you owe a debt to somebody, they have power over you. So take a debt in your life. Say you have student loans, right? Uh, everybody has student loans, right? I mean, I think we're, we're the first generation to just have an inordinate amount of student loans. Um, and then house prices also are skyrocketing, so it's like, all right, I guess we'll just all rent forever, right? Um, but your student loans, uh, you owe the government money. Okay? The government has power over that part of your paycheck. Okay? And if you don't believe me, stop paying them and see what happens. They're going to come after you. They're going to turn you over to collections. Your credit score is going to tank. That's going to happen. Then they're going to bring you into a lawsuit, which is really just kind of, I mean, that's, that's a, I mean, you're not going to win that because you know who's mediating between you and the government? The judicial branch of the government. I mean, you're not going to win that. They're going to like take your stuff and then they're going to garnish your paychecks because the government has power over that part of your income now because you are in debt to them. But imagine this. Imagine someone was to step in and pay off all your student, le- student debt. Like really imagine that. What would that feel like? You feel like a weight lift off your shoulders? You feel that? That's the, go- that's the power of the government lifting off of your shoulders is what it is. It's like, wait, the government doesn't have power over that part of my paycheck anymore? Wow. And so, and so similarly, similarly, Jesus' death on the cross canceled our debt to God by fronting the payment for our sin. It releases us from the powers of the elemental spirits of the world that hold power over humans. Praise God. When Jesus' heavenly life assumed our earthly life on his earthly body and God killed him, your earthly life died too. Okay, still abstract. I get it. Let's go to the next piece. The next piece goes like this. You were raised to a heavenly life with Christ. You were raised to a heavenly life with Christ. So just as your earthly life died with Christ's earthly life, you were raised to a new heavenly life with him. How does that work? Here's the key. God always responds to humility with gracious power, always. Whenever people kneel before God, humble themselves before him, he responds with gracious power. That's why we can be confident that these, all these people in the Old Testament who were submitting to God will in fact be in heaven with us because they were submitting to him and he was responding in gracious power to them. This is why Jesus was raised from the dead. He didn't want to go to the cross. Garden of Gethsemane, Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to do it. But because he humbled himself, God's power 
showed up, rose him from the dead into heaven again. So, so when we likewise, when we humble ourselves before God, that looks like this. Um, and we're going to talk about this uh, at Baptism Sunday. When you look at Jesus and say, you're my Savior and you're my Lord, in that, in that phrase, in that statement, is all the humility necessary for God to react in gracious power towards you. When you say Jesus is your Savior, what you're saying is, I am sinful and I can't make this better on my own. When you say he's your Lord, you say, and, and I don't know how to do it, so I need Jesus' direction for how to live a life that is in line with God's will in heaven. Jesus is your, heaven, your Savior and your Lord. That's what it looks like to humble yourself before Christ, and God raises us to a new heavenly life at that point. They really happened at the same time, okay? Your earthly body dies, and you are raised to life with Jesus at the same time when you become a Christian. But here's what's awesome about it. You become like Christ in this way. You now walk the world as he did, with an earthly body and a heavenly life. You see that? This is the basis for what imitating Christ in our life sits upon. The fact that we have been given a heavenly life and an earthly body to walk these streets. All right, so... This probably still is a little abstract because we still have our earthly body. And Paul calls this earthly body our flesh throughout Scripture, our flesh throughout his letters, okay? And the flesh, while it is your earthly body, it's no longer empowered by your earthly life and subject to the elemental spirits of the world. We took two weeks to talk about what the elemental spirits are. Go back and listen to those, okay? It has its own sinful brokenness attached to it. And so Paul says this, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And so this is what he's saying. You've already done all this work to make this statement. He's saying, use your heavenly life, that's with Christ, to dictate the actions of your earthly body. Use your heavenly life to dictate the actions of your earthly body. That's what Paul's saying. That's the reality that he's speaking to. And over time, this earthly body, driven by a heavenly life, will conform and mold more and more into the future heavenly body that will be revealed. That's the reality that's going on here. How does that work, okay? Well, what are these things that we're supposed to set our minds on then? If we're up in this heavenly realm, what are these things that we're supposed to seek out? What are these things we're supposed to set our minds on? Great question. They're not so much things that we're supposed to possess as they are heavenly realities that we seek to orient ourselves to. They're not things, but heavenly values to orient ourselves to. We don't strive for a heavenly status. That's already been given to us. But our heavenly status serves as the guidepost, the street signs for all thinking and acting. The Christian life is one that is then constantly occupied in striving for the orientation of this heavenly reality where God's will is perfectly done. That's heaven on earth. 
strives for heavenly life values to drive our earthly-bound bodies, okay? So you, or you could say it like this, heaven is the sphere to which Christians truly belong. We truly belong there. And we seek the things in heaven by deliberately and daily committing ourselves to the values of that heavenly kingdom and living out those values here, okay? So let's do an example, okay? Here's a for instance. Suppose there's a Christian who views a pornography with their earthly body and the Holy Spirit pricks them and they have remorse over that, okay? They have remorse because it's an offense to God. What's the first thing that you do? You celebrate. You celebrate. The very fact that there is a battle with sin is an indication of what? That that person has a heavenly life. It's cause for great joy. It's cause for great joy. We celebrate. That's the first thing that we do. It's great news, okay? It's always great news whenever someone recognizes their sin and has remorse for it, no matter what, okay? Okay, so now, how does this reality actually empower them to deal with their sin, though? Well, they have to seek out and set their mind on heavenly things. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means to consider with their heavenly body in mind. And in this instance, that consideration looks like this. This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You can write it down and read it later, okay? This is a paraphrase and an elaboration of 1 Corinthians 6, okay? This is what Paul says there. To Christians who are struggling with sexual immorality, he says this, don't you know that your earthly body is being transformed into your heavenly body? And that heavenly body is a corporate joining together of all believers into the body of Christ. And so what you do with your earthly body, you're actually doing with Christ's heavenly body? Took the heavenly life and translated it down to earthly body. And how does that make you feel? That provides us with the motivation to push through sexual sin in our lives. Now, there's a lot more work that has to get done in this, in this example, for instance, you know? Uh, you probably have to get a content blocker on your phone and computer so you can cut it out of your life, and you need to find somebody to talk to about what's triggering your desire in this area. But this is the, the ground base and motivation for how our heavenly life can dictate how we control our earthly bodies. It's much more robust than, than trying to handle sin in other ways, okay? This is what the Christian life is all about. This is what the Christian life is all about. Paul is calling Christians to look back at the gospel of Jesus, to look back at the death event on the cross, to look back at the resurrection event of the tomb. He said, go back there. That's where you're going to find the energy to deal with sin in your life. You see, the gospel just isn't your ticket into the kingdom of God. It's the currency of the kingdom of God. Jesus' death and resurrection drive everything we do. This is what the Christian life's all about. The gospel mediates our heavenly life to our earthly body. The gospel mediates our heavenly life to our earthly body. There's so many things to say here, okay? Um, the first, I'll just say three quick ones. The first is that this is why the life of the mind is crucial for the Christian. Absolutely crucial. Participating with our heavenly uh, minds, or our, our heavenly life, 
It renews our minds. It's an exercise of the mind, and it's that which empowers transformation in our lives. Skip down to verse 9. It's that which empowers transformation in our life, our mind. Paul says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in what? In knowledge, after the image of its creator. What's that thing that's above, the, the primary thing that's above in heaven? It's God. It's God. And our heavenly life can gather so much knowledge about who God is and translate it down to us. The life of the mind is so crucial for the Christian. This, this is everywhere in Scripture. Uh, if you turn over to Romans chapter 12, this is how Romans chapter 12 even starts. Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern, that's mind language, what is the will of God. You may discern what's good, what's acceptable, and what's perfect. The life of the mind is so important to the Christian life. It's crucial. All right, uh, Second thing I want to say is, um, this is why non-believers can't understand a Christian's relationship with sin. They can't understand a Christian's relationship with our bodies. Ships passing in the night. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of like that. We have had an earthly life before, but they don't have a heavenly life. So they, they, can't, they have no category for this reality of heavenly life speaking to our earthly bodies and helping us control our earthly bodies. We can look at them and say, oh yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So if you explain the Christian life to, the, to a non-Christian and they're confused by that, it's not your fault. There, there's a profound mystery that's only revealed by the gospel. This is 1 Corinthians 2. Write that down and go back to it. There's a wisdom that shows up in Christians, to Christians' minds, through the gospel of Jesus, that people who aren't Christians, they can't understand. So don't take, it's not your fault. If when you talk about your faith to someone who doesn't know Jesus, if they can't understand it, it is intranslatable in, in, in some ways until this reality is understood. And if, you, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, we're so glad that you're here and, and pressing into the life of the mind with us. That's why we say we are a considering community. Consider is unapologetically intellectual. Unapologetically. It takes time to gain definitions of sin and God and understand what Jesus was doing in history, to piece all this together, to begin to understand these re this heavenly life reality, these earthly bodies. It takes time to do that. And if you're, uh, if you're, you're here today and, and you say you're not a Christian, but this is making a lot of sense to you, well, it's time to get baptized probably. <laughs> It's time to start thinking about baptism. If this is making a ton of sense to you and you're like, yeah, I kind of conceive of God in that way, it's probably because you've been processing and it's, it's snuck up on you. And we're going to have someone who's baptized in two weeks on, Ju on June 30th, and that's their story. It's just kind of snuck up on them. We're like, wait a sec. Now I'm conceiving of Jesus, and this, I have this heavenly life and this earthly body, and, and I have a, a robust definition of sin, and I'm seeking to obey God in my life. 
I guess I'm a Christian. Okay? And then finally, this is why we encourage baptism. Uh, baptism is the drama of this reality. Jesus asks us to do it because it's an enactment with our earthly body of our heavenly reality that we have, our heavenly life. So when we baptize people, this is Romans 6, first half of the chapter of Romans 6, we say, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. It's a dramatization of this thing. It, it isn't what saves you. It's a, it's a dramatization of something that's already happened in your life. But Jesus gave it to us. We could always have that physical reminder. This is what the Christian life is all about. And that's why we baptize people here in Sedaris, okay? So if you're a Christian, I hope you feel a weight lifted by this reality, okay? I hope you see that there's a path to maturity and growth that's easier and more successful than white-knuckling it. I hope you see that you've already had the breakthrough experience that you need in order to live a life close to God. You've already had it. You've already had it. It's just your task to revisit it and unpack it. There is where Christians conquer sin. That's where they conquer sin, okay? All right, so that's the reality. It took a long time to go through that. We're going to go through Paul's conclusions now here. This should go a little bit quicker, okay? Don't worry. Verse 8. Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. All right. Um, so Paul says in verse 3 that you have died. In verse 5, he continues, put to death, he says. You have died, put to death. This is a statement that uh, you'll hear in Christian circles sometimes. This is Become what you are. You have died, now put to death. Paul makes it clear, leaning into the reality of our heavenly life and our heavenly mindset creates an eagerness to put sin to death in our mortal bodies. But what's important to remember here is that putting to death what's earthly in us isn't only demanded by our incorporation into Christ, it's really empowered by it through the Holy Spirit okay? Paul doesn't actually unpack that in this passage much, but it's, it's definitely there. There's so much language of the work that the Holy Spirit accomplishes in the above four verses. A lot of that is mediated by the power of the Holy Spirit, and now he's really changing gears to talk about our role and our responsibility in growth and maturity, okay? And, and there's really two uh, kind of ways that you can, uh, you can fall into error with regards to this. The first is, is that you can think that your growth your maturity is all on God. That, that, that's his job. That's his responsibility. And when Christians do that, they don't grow. Plain and simple. They just don't grow and they don't mature. The other, the other error you can make is, is you, can, you can assume too much of that role and responsibility on your shoulders. Okay? And you can try to white-knuckle it. You can try to make a lot of rules without relying on God and the Holy Spirit to help you. And then you'll give up after a while. That way is just as ineffective, but a lot more frustrating. <laughs> okay? But do you know what navigates between these two? Using your heavenly life, which forces you into relationship with God, relationship with the Holy Spirit in particular, to take real actions to control your earthly body. Okay? So we have uh, two five-item lists here in verse 5 and then in verse 8. What are these lists all about? Um, 
in a certain sense that they aren't exhaustive, meaning you can't piece every sin into these lists. They're not umbrellas that every sin falls under. But it seems that the first umbrella kind of refers to sins of the private life, second umbrella, sins of the public life, okay? But there are more probably sins of the private life and more sins of the public life than in these lists here, okay? The first list goes like this. starts with these three, um, sexual immorality, impurity, passion. These words are actually really difficult to parse from each other. How are these different from each other? And, and so what Paul's doing with these three is he's, he's likely just referencing all sexual sin, which is one faithful to the scriptures. He would be referencing any and all lust and any and all sexual actions that, uh, that would occur outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. That's Paul's sexual ethic. And because it's in scripture, we would agree with Paul's sexual ethic here at Sedaris Church, okay? But what's happening here is there's a heavenly life of God's will in, sec- in how we are to conduct our sexual lives here on earth. And Paul, is, what he's doing is he's translating that heavenly life vision for sex down into our earthly bodies. That's what he's doing, okay? But then there's more. Then we have evil desire. These are desires that we have for our earthly bodies instead of our heavenly bodies that we hold on the level of an idol, he says. The whole, this list is wrapped up with idolatry, which means we hold it out as an ultimate thing. These are things that we need more than anything. Food, vacations, successful career, perfect partner. The list could go on and on. What are those desires that have outpaced your desire for a relationship with God? What are those things? He says those are sins. Those are us feeding our earthly bodies, not our heavenly ones. Then covetousness, which of course is greed. What do you have to have? What are you pursuing that when it's threatened, you growl? Talked about this growling the past couple weeks. Money, time, energy. What is it? Growling is your earthly body trying to feed itself. Your heavenly life doesn't and won't growl. It doesn't. All right, so, so the second list to put away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Uh, these seem to uh, really capture more of public emphasis towards sin. Like the first list, anger, wrath, and malice, hard to differentiate them from each other. They seem to overlap. It's clear that these three function together to describe an attitude of ill will against others. And so the question goes like this, who don't you like? How do you express it? Who don't you like? Who do you have a dislike for? And how do you express that? That's sin. That's sin. It doesn't have to be in person. It could be on social media. It could be in the form of slander. That's the next thing. Talking about people behind their back to make others think less of them. And filthy language. These two things refer to things that come out of our mouths. There's this theme throughout Scripture that our mouths have this unique ability to both bless people and curse people. To do good and to do evil. How is your heavenly life controlling your earthly mouth? Okay, so that's the reality. Those are these lists. Uh, These lists are given, I think Paul gives them to us in order to give us some handles for how to think about heavenly life and earthly body things. But how do we actually take steps to do this? Like, that's great. We have the reality. What's the how? Four things. First, admit your sin for what it really is. Admit 
your sin for what it really is. When you sin in the area of sexual immorality, admit it. Call it sexual immorality, not I'm being tempted a little. Call it impurity, not I'm struggling with my thought life. Call it evil desire, not I need to rethink my priorities a little bit. Call it slander, not just a little gossip. Admit your sin for what it really is. Two, see your sin for what it really is. See your sin for what it really is. Did you catch that reference to God's wrath in verse 6? On account of these, that is those sins, on account of sin, the wrath of God is coming. Just going to casually drop that in there, Paul. What are you up to? Well, hear this very clearly. Paul is not writing this to threaten Christians. This is not a threat. This is not a get on board or you're going to be get, you're going to be get put out phrase. How do we know that? Because he just got done telling them that their lives were hidden with Christ in God. They are fully accepted. If you are a Christian, you are fully accepted no matter how well you're doing in these lists. Hear that fully accepted. He starts off this letter by saying to the saints, which in Greek, the the literal translation of saints, holy ones, the holy ones in Colossae. They're loved. They're deeply accepted. They're messing up, yeah, but they're loved and accepted. Why this reference to God's wrath then? Well, because in the heavenly realm, part of leaning into our heavenly life is to gain knowledge about God's disposition towards sin. This is God's disposition towards sin. It's not a threat to you. It's an encouragement. It's an encouragement. It's meant to say, this is how God looks at sin. This is the severity of it. Let's work on it. That's what it is. All right? It's not a threat. It's an encouragement. See your sin for what it really is. Three, and this is actually what we've been talking about all morning. Recognize your inconsistency. Recognize your inconsistency with sin. Recognize your inconsistency with sin. In verse 9, Paul says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. He's saying, don't sin, because that's part of your old earthly self and not part of your new heavenly life. Sin is an inauthentic expression of you, if you're a Christian. Sin is an inauthentic expression of you, if you're a Christian. Now, that's a big point that we have to, to double down on as the church of Jesus Christ Because there are so many teachers out there teaching to audiences of thousands that authenticity is actually just found in executing whatever desires you have. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Podcasts broadcast to millions of Christians saying that if you desire something, to act contrary to your desire is an inauthentic expression of yourself. And that couldn't be further from the truth. We are inauthentic when we press into our earthly body's desires. We are most authentic when we are operating out of our heavenly life, which looks at the will of God. That's when we are most authentic in life. 
use your heavenly life to control your earthly body. This is identity. We've been talking about identity all morning. We just haven't used the word. You have a heavenly body and, or a heavenly life and earthly body just like Christ. That's who you are. Christ did not sin, and so when you do not sin, you are imitating Christ, and he is your identity. That's what it's all about, okay? Four, put your sin to death. Put your sin to death. It's part four, and how do we do this? Now, I get that. I said, how do we put sin to death? And part four is put it to death. A little bit of backwards, circular reasoning there. But take steps to cut sin out of your life. Know where you can trust for yourself. Know where you can't trust yourself. Back when we were doing our series through uh, the book of Acts, we had people come up and give testimonies to God's power working through them. Lena Namkun came up here. This was her testimony. It was great. She said, my friends invited me to go to Las Vegas, and I knew that if I did it, I would just get drunk and party that entire weekend away. I just, I, I knew it. So she told him no. She said, no, I'm not going to go to Las Vegas with you guys. I'm sorry. That's Lena putting sin to death in her life. And it's not a rule and regulation. Uh, knowing Lena, she would never say no one could ever go to Las Vegas. She was just saying, I can't handle that right now. You need to know yourself to put your sin to death. Know where it's happening and cut it off. Stay away. Flee. You know, I, I think, and then eventually you'll grow in maturity and you'll be able to handle that. Lena now, I had a conversation with her a few weeks ago. She can go to Sin City and leave the sin on the side. Praise God. Praise God. It's because she put her sin to death. She got on board with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> you know what? I've never gone back to breaking down a check at a restaurant. I've never done it. I still use Venmo all the time. And it's amazing. It's an incredible reality. It's too life-giving. <laughs> and as you lean into this reality that your earthly life has died with Christ, your new heavenly life is with him, and use this heavenly life to control your earthly body, you're going to find so much life. So much life. It's an exercise of the mind, yes. But it's why we say here, we never stop considering, okay? Consider the cross and resurrection of Jesus, okay? So this week, we talked all about sin. Sin is what we don't do. Sin is what this reality inspires us not to do in life. Next week, if you read on, you see that Paul changes his tone and talks about what this heavenly life inspires us to do now. And so that's going to be part two next week. I hope that you can join us, all right? Pray with me.